Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a presentation from the IO360 2020 Summit, in which Seattle Genetics' Millie Schultz, Senior Director of Regional Clinical Trial Operations, addressed operational dynamics of implementing and managing basket trials. All right, so welcome to our afternoon session where we're discussing um, clinical operations. My name is Millie Schultz. Um, I lead our regional clinical trial operation team at Seattle Genetics. And looking forward to an educational uh, session this afternoon where we have an um, hopefully lively exchange of ideas. Um, and please do ask questions at the end of our sessions. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, to kick us off today, I'm going to be discussing the operational dynamics of implementing and managing basket trials. Sorry, this microphone's throwing me off a little because I'm short. So, all right. Um, and do I have this slide advanced? Or yes, I do. All right. So first, I'd like to um, really baseline everyone on what are we talking about when we talk about basket studies. And then once we have that common nomenclature, move into the operational considerations for executing those studies. So um, how do we put, select the proper sites? How do we set them up for success? What are those training considerations, both internal and external? protocols and um, case report forms so that we're nimble and we don't have to have a lot of changes and amendments. And then what are the project management considerations when we're executing these studies? So for our background, um, as sponsors, investigators, patient, patient advocacy groups, we're always looking for ways to accelerate the drug development process. Um, it's traditionally been glacially slow, very sequential process. Um, we now are seeing health authorities as well that are saying, let's speed this up. Let's get these new uh, therapies to patients in a faster, more expeditious way. So with that, that's led us to a platform approach for pipeline development. And so just to baseline all of us on um, the types of studies that are out there with this platform approach, um, there are the umbrella studies where we might be looking at various therapies that are looking at one specific tumor type. And then the basket approach where we're looking at one specific therapy that's um, simultaneously testing multiple tumor types. That's where our focus will be this afternoon. And then there's sort of the matrix between umbrella in basket, which is our platform study, where we have many moving pieces. We're rolling in various therapies, various tumor types, tumor types um, testing hypotheses simultaneously, and rolling things in and out. And for those individuals who are a little more visual to your right and what we're going to discuss today for basket studies. So um, I would like to first thank uh, Werb Copernicus Group for the next few slides that you'll see in these metrics. Um, I know all of us in operations were very typically metrics-driven, so hopefully this will orient um, what we're seeing with regard to basket studies today. So over the last five to six years in general, we've seen an uptick in these types of studies. Um, right now, we're looking at specifically phase one studies, but as you'll see later on, the trend applies to late phase as well. And then these studies are typically uh, performed in the U.S. and Western Europe and Australia as well. For phase one studies, uh, we do see a high uh, activity rate both in China and Japan, um, where we need specific population PK data or specific uh, patient population uh, for registration. 
And then the most likely indications to be included in these studies are a lot of the main tumor types, lung cancer, breast, colorectal, head and neck and gastric, and lymphomas. Now, this is a key slide, um, something that we will revisit uh, later in the talk, but um, how many investigators have participated in these types of studies? The key takeaway from here is that um, the majority of investigators participating in these basket, basket studies, this is their first trial, um, or perhaps they've only participated in one previously. And um, just oncologists. Um, so when we look at phase two and phase three studies, we really see the same trends and uptick in these types of studies, same major tumor types as well, and same um, geographic location, primarily driven through the U.S., Western Europe, and Australia. And also same trend here. This is important to note as we talk about operational considerations. This is um, a new type of study that's new to a lot of our investigators. So with that background, I want to roll us into the operational considerations. So site selection is incredibly important, especially as we know that most sites have not participated in these types of studies. And so oftentimes when people see these people, they're anxious to participate, but perhaps they don't have a full appreciation of all the nuances and the requirements and complexities of these types of studies. So when we're selecting um, our sites, obviously we want to look for quality sites, but we need to understand the patient funnel at the site. Um, and this is really more applicable to our larger institutions and academic medical centers, but a a lot of times you have various departments participating um, that are somewhat siloed, and so it's important for both the study team at the site and, and the sponsor to really understand how is that study team at site working together to identify and funnel patients into our study. Um, and we also want to consider the number of sites that are participating. What we don't want to do is to have just a single site participating on a single cohort that becomes a lot to manage, a lot of quality over Site. So when you're selecting sites, you really want to make sure that you have sites that are able to successfully enroll multiple cohorts. And then another key piece is engaging everyone at the site early on. I know for our traditional studies, we typically engage the PI, study coordinator, early on up front, and we don't have a lot of communication with those sub-investigators. But it's important that we engage the full team up front and make sure that we have buy-in up front. And then taking a look at what the site is proposing they can do, how they'll execute, looking at um, how successful have they been, um, that's important to validate the selection of those sites. The other piece to think about as well is, as we see from the prior data, that um, basket studies are relatively new for investigators. So it's important to also look at single tumor types for the sub-investigators that were participating to make sure that they've been successful as well. So when we think about protocol development, um, I think the key piece here is flexibility. You want to make sure that you're writing your protocol in a way that it's flexible and that if one arm is changing, you don't have your whole protocol come to a screeching halt to update the full protocol. So thinking about eligibility criteria, um, you want to try to be as to have various types of eligibility criteria per cohort that lends itself to a lot of confusion and potentially um, additional protocol violations or protocol deviations. So trying to harmonize that across all cohorts is very important. 
important, as is your schedule of events. Um, again, standardization in these types of protocols to the best that one can do is very important to reduce protocol violations and deviations. And then response criteria, making sure that you're applying the appropriate response criteria and implementing that in your protocol that needs to be used per tumor type. So um, do you need a specific uh, response criteria for solid tumors versus lymphomas? And so whether we're talking about basket studies or a traditional single-arm study, randomized study, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is making sure that we leverage the experience from our sites early on with protocol development. So again, typically we might have just an N of one looking at that PI to provide that experience up front and protocol review. We really want to make sure that we're involving all of our investigators because you have various individuals who are really those SMEs and KOLs for those various tumor types. So that early engagement is important. And then when you approach the protocol, you can take two different approaches, really. So one, if you find that all of that criteria we discussed on the prior slide, eligibility, SOE, response criteria, if that's harmonizing various tumor types and cohorts, you can combine all of that into one core protocol. However, if you have a divergent group, you may consider a core protocol and various tumor-specific appendices to help yourself that you won't have as many amendments to do in the future. And then keeping with standardization, the same applies to informed conform um, sorry, informed consent form considerations. So we all know even with one global template consent form, oftentimes there are issues with regard to proper versioning, um, IRB ethics uh, committee approval of proper versions. So we don't want to have multiple versions of the consent form floating around. You want to make sure that that's crafted to satisfy all of the various cohorts and patients that you may be approaching. Uh, data management. So this is pretty straightforward. Um, I like to think of this as like the choose your own adventure book. So um, when you're you're building out your case report form, it's important to have triggers early on within the system. So when you select your tumor type, that will then cascade into various dynamic forms. Um, you may find that you need different forms for medical history, screening, baseline, and response assessment pages. So that's important to keep in mind as well. Same philosophy applies if you have a change that's needed for one arm, you want to try to make that as pinpoint of a change as possible and not impact um, the full suite of pages. And then it's also important to think about who's entering the data. For a lot of our larger academic sites, we find that we might have one data manager, and they're responsible for entering data across many departments, and they may not really fundamentally understand that patient journey and the data that they're looking at. So it's important that they're set up for success, or you may even want to consider having multiple data managers at the site but ensuring that whoever's entering that data is properly trained and they understand what they're looking at and that they have timely access to that data is key. Um, and then the other piece that um, is sort of just as an aha moment from teams that I've been on, there's always been such a focus on the site. Is the site trained well? Is the site set up for success? And many times these studies are run by teams that have one specific focus, and they don't have an appreciation for all those other tumor types um, and, and what might go into that patient journey. So it's important that the internal team and the team that's reviewing the data is also very well versed in the data that's being entered and what they're reviewing. Um, so that they can truly give that a thoughtful, knowledgeable review. Um, sorry, I think I might have just popped ahead quickly, but... 
Um, thinking about site startup activities. So, um, you know, we talked about it earlier, that early engagement of all investigators, um, leveraging that expertise and then having multiple protocol champions at the site, especially for our academic medical centers. You might have multiple scientific committees, multiple tumor boards that you have to go to, um, depending on your various departments. So if you have early engagement by everyone, you have people championing your protocol through those review committees. Um, they're really helping to drive site startup. In addition, what this could do is by socializing that there is a basket study in the queue being reviewed, is coming to the institution, um, hopefully you will offset any potential competing studies that are coming into any of these departments as well. And then thinking about who's taking point for all of the activities for startup, whether that's regulatory, budget, conscience. So again, similar to data management, oftentimes you have one individual who needs to coordinate across multiple departments uh, within these larger centers. So it's important that we give these centers additional time to make sure that they're coordinated properly and set up for success, and making sure that the individuals that are doing that work um, have that, that space to uh, coordinate with all of those different players. Um, also, ensuring roles and responsibilities are clearly defined. Who's going to disseminate new information as it comes out? There are a lot of different players in these studies, and so um, no longer do you have that single point of contact. But if a new amendment is coming out or new emerging data is coming out, we want to make sure that we understand what is that insight and how are individuals getting that information, how are they being trained, and how is it documented? Um, training, again, I think we've touched on this um, throughout the, the talk, but it's obviously very important. So thinking about external training at the site, making sure roles and responsibilities are clearly defined, um, ensuring that if you do have a primary coordinator or data manager, that they're set up for success through training um, and that they have the proper time to coordinate with their peers and other departments as well. And then taking that internal reflection and that internal look on um, proper training for the sponsor or CRO. Um, this is really critical for proper oversight. And one of the things to think about is have been CRAs or work closely with CRAs, you know, monitoring can be very challenging for CRAs. Oftentimes our monitors have multiple protocols which are hard enough in themselves to manage, but now we're giving them a protocol which is essentially a lot of mini protocols within that. And so we're asking them to be an expert on multiple tumor types. So um, it's important to think outside of the box. How do you approach that? How do you set up your CRAs for success? Maybe Maybe you consider co-monitoring and you have some of your CRAs are really SMEs for some tumor types, and then you have others that support them who really understand the other TAs. Um, and just a reminder, again, sometimes the inter internal team can be the weakest link in our data review and execution, just because I know we oftentimes like to think that we're, it's really important that the internal team is uh, trained across all tumor types. And then um, the last few slides, I just want to hit on project management considerations. So again, these are a lot of sort of mini studies within a broader uh, clinical trial. And so for me personally, one of my large pet peeves is um, if someone expresses to me a single FPI and a single LPI, it's not really informative of the health of the study. So when we're tracking out milestones for the study, it's important to treat each cohort as its own mini trial and appreciate that there will be very inflection points and go-no-go -no -go points within those trials, and you really need to manage all of those simultaneously. Those. 
And so with all of those um, uh, deliverables that are built into a single study, it oftentimes means additional resourcing than our resourcing algorithms allow for. So that's something to take into consideration as well. I find that the teams that I work with on these studies um, are in a constant state of data review, constant state of potential amendments, and um, updating supporting documents to accompany those amendments. So it's important that we make sure that internally as sponsors or CROs, and from the site perspective as well, that we are giving teams um, the proper resources to be successful and execute their studies with quality. Um, and again, just the high level of OSER CRO is really critical for executing these studies successfully. So with that, I think that's um, the end of our slides. So thank you for your time. Are there any questions? Thank you for that presentation. I, my question stems around the, the trying to, to uniformize the consents going across. As someone on the, the discovery and research side, when, it, when I find out about a trial going on and then a new piece of information comes in, I'm very interested, oh, can we do some RNA-seq and do some biomarker searches in that? Is it challenging to get sort of broad research consents or samples that you have? And I'm sure that's very challenging for the yeah. the clinical team that's working on it, you have a very narrow focus that you need to focus on that trial and that questions from discovery can, can but get But is your mix. question more of if we're um, informing a patient that we're utilizing their samples for various biomarker testing? Is that... My, my question is, is it challenging to get to have broad... Uh, usage. Obviously, I, everybody's going through the proper yeah. consents and the proper informing the patients cr correctly of the hospital. Just in general, is it difficult to get broad research rights on, on a sample for sequencing and searching for biomarkers for a period of time? Well, so I think that might be, I'm, I'm probably struggling with as that's framed with regard to the informed consent form. So we usually do not, as we approach patients about using their samples, the same time frame for using samples and the same purpose for those samples is generally outlined for patients so that they understand. But specific biomarkers are not outlined, so that gives you that broad umbrella. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO360 2020 conference. The next IO360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.